Okay, so I must confess I did not expect at least three-quarters of you to be back. Uh, I thought, all honesty, it would either just be me, Slim, and Malcolm here with a worship of three. Um, I even thought that uh, our families would bail on us. Well, I guess yours did, dude. <laughs> I thought I was going to get an excuse like, hey, man, the kids are sick, sweetie. I'm sorry. I just can't make it today. And those of you that uh, were not here last week, you're wondering, what is he talking about? Well, we started a mini-series on depression, so you do have time to leave if you would like, if you just came here. Um, so here's how we're going we're gonna to start this part two. We're going to be five weeks. We started last week. We've got four more to go, so the numbers might dwindle, and I'm, I'm expecting that, but it's the way it goes. Um, here are my top three Westerns of all time, just because I think you should know them. And you should have at least one of these on your top three Westerns of all time. I'm going to start with number three, and we can drum roll down to number one. Are you ready? Here's number three. Of course, Lonesome Dove, right? Yeah, okay, good, very good. The other one is the Outlaw Josie Wales. Yes! Outlaw Josie Wales, because dying ain't much of a living, boy, right? That's a great line. Do y'all even know that line? Okay, and then the last is number one, Tombstone. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Tombstone. Now, my favorite line in Tombstone, Beyond I'm Your Huckleberry by Doc Holliday, my favorite line happens uh, when there's this bad guy, because there's always a bad guy in Westerns, and he is in a saloon full of people, and he is just bullying them and abusing them and threatening them and intimidating them and throwing his bulliness around, and, and it's pretty gruesome. Except for one thing he doesn't know, and slowly people began to figure it up, is that the legendary Wyatt Earp happens to walk up behind him and listen to this whole thing. And eventually everyone sees him. The crowd that was scared to death begins to have confidence, and then he sees him. The bad guy sees him, and that's when Wyatt smacks him with an open fist. Not a closed fist, an open fist, and just smacks him. And this big bully does nothing but get afraid. And so Earp just psh, smacks him again. And it's almost like, you know, where are you? You're threatening all these people, you big tough. Where's the big tough guy, right? And before you could actually get register that, he smacks him one more time, and then he says the line for all lines, for all Westerns, for all the ages. Are you just going to stand there and bleed? But that's exactly what you do in depression. You just stand there and bleed. So what do you do besides bleed in depression? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. First Kings 19, 9 through 18. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, covenant thrown down your altars, 
and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, and the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that is not, has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, y'all, please be seated. All right, so Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. I do ask that this is such a, um, this is a powerful, hot topic, and you address it. And so would you, um, would you speak personally? Would you speak healingly? Would you speak comfortingly? Would you speak helpfully uh, to those who are really struggling right now? And to all of us who have struggled and will struggle. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so here's the question, y'all. How do we survive depression? Last week we looked at Elijah's road to sorrow. This week, we look at Elijah's survival in sorrow. So how did Elijah survive his road of sorrow? That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to start at verse 5. I want you to look at verse 5 of chapter 19. You're going to need an electronic device. If you, need a, if you don't have one of those, there's a Bible on the seat in front of you. Grab that. Pull it out. Go to the middle of the Bible. Go a little bit to the left. Keep going to the left till you see Kings and hit 19. Look at verse 5. He says, he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. So Elijah's exhausted. Elijah is completely spent. Physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, he's spent. In other words, Elijah is depressed. <laughs> completely, utterly depressed. But notice what's said next. And behold. Now remember, as we've talked about the Hebrew in a lot of times, we see that word behold is used throughout the Old Testament scriptures. It means pay attention. So it means mark this, see this, uh, watch what's happening here. Rivet your attention here. Fix yourself to see what's happening. So, what's happening? Now let's look down at verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and here it is again. Behold, pay attention. <laughs> Fixate here. I want you to see this, is what the scripture is saying to us. There are two beholds. These two beholds are God's response to Elijah's depression. I want, this is so incredible that God has literally 
said, I want you to know this is my response. This is my help. This is how I'm going to interact with a depressed Elijah. This is my response. This is my help for you in depression. I'm signaling it with two beholds. One in verse 5, the other in verse 9. So we're going to move into there and find God's response, God's help for depression, how you survive depression. But there's one more help in here that's often overlooked. It's really overlooked. In fact, if you, all the resources that I interact with when I study a text, no one mentioned it. Uh, but it's here. Do you see it? Now, there's no behold for it. But it's there. See if you can find it real quick before I mention it. I want you to look at verse 4. Here it is. And he asked, what's Elijah doing right now? He's praying. Hmm. So Elijah is praying that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah is praying his pain. There's this description in Isaiah that's absolutely brutal. It's absolutely just heart-wrenching. It describes someone who is completely desolate, weeping uncontrollably, broken beyond brokenness, but doing so on their bed alone. Instead of praying their pain to God, that they would just rather deal with it on their own instead of praying their pain to God. Professionals will tell you, psychiatrists, physicians, therapists, counselors, pastors will tell you, parents will tell you, anyone in ministry leader will tell you, anyone that is, does relational ministry will tell you this, anyone that's experienced personal pain will tell you this, that there is this mysterious kind of help that happens when you voice your pain. There's this incredible mystery and this incredible dynamic that you can't quite put your finger on it, but all the professionals will tell you that when you voice your pain, when you, you pray your pain, there's a, there's a help there, there's a comfort there. When you pray your pain to God, when you voice your pain to God, something incredible happens. You find God sitting with you in the ashes. You actually start experiencing divine sympathy. You, you connect, you make contact with God actually touching you. When we pray our pain, instead of stuffing it and dealing with it on our own or just being completely surrendered to it and being swept and swallowed by it, you experience God sitting with you in your pain, sitting with you in your ashes. You actually experience him touching you in the ash heap. Now, we're going we're gonna to spend more time on that later when we get to Psalm 88. But the first thing we need to know about, if you're going to survive depression at all, the first thing we, we must engage in is learning how to pray our pain. 
And when we get to Psalm 88, we're going to learn how to pray our pain. We're going to follow the psalmist because he's going to teach you how to do it. And in that mystery, in that dynamic, we will see how you actually experience God sitting with you in the ashes. And we're going to focus specifically on that probably in two weeks. But right now, it's here in the text, even though it's not signaled with a behold, right? Behold, Elijah is about to pray. It doesn't do that. But the other beholds are. So let's enter into those. Here it is, verse 5. And he laid down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, pay attention, here it is. An angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, probably Gatorade. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and don't miss this, he went in strength of that food. Whatever's going on here, whatever's happening here, it strengthens Elijah in the midst of his depression. And there's a lot going on here. It's incredible what's going on here. Do you see this? Sleep is going on. Rest. Unbelievable. There's touch, personal contact, even if it's from an angel. And then there's food and drink, and then there's more rest. More rest. There's more touch from the angel. There's more food and drink. What's going on here? Natural help. So for a lot of you in your depression, stop being so stupidly spiritual. Because one of the major resources that's right here that he wants you to see that's in Holy Scripture... Spiritual scripture, behold, there are natural helps. In fact, Dr. Hannah, he used to tell us, I mean, for four years, I was in a four-year program, and for four years he would tell future pastors, future ministry leaders, whether you're going to be a missionary or a co-pastor or a church planter, a senior pastor, whatever you were, he would say this at least once a semester. He'd say, you know, you know, gentlemen, most of your problems could be cured with a good night's sleep and eating better and exercising, not just having a quiet time. In 1879, can you imagine this? I can't imagine. I know I can't imagine because this happened to me. In 1879, Spurgeon, against his own wishes, was forced to take a three-month break from ministry in France. Why? Others said the demands made upon his head and heart made the strain too great. Charles's mind and spirit sank into painful depression from which there is no recovery but by... Now you fill in the blank. But by rest. Rest, flowers and sunshine, rest. Spurgeon came to realize, and I'm putting this in my own words, but I think this is the way he would say it. Spurgeon came to realize, I'm not a machine. I'm a human being. I'm not a machine. There were all their kind of natural helps that he learned. One of them that, that was quite interesting, he used to quote, Saw, uh, Proverbs 17, 22 all the time. He saw 
medicine, a great medicine being laughter. Listen to this. A joyful heart, a laughing heart is good medicine. Don't miss that. Good medicine. Here, take this pill of laughter. Take this pill of Kevin Hart. Take this pill of Comedy Central, whatever it is today. Take this pill of telling a good joke. Take this pill of laughing with your friends. Take this pill of not taking yourself so seriously. Take this pill. It's great medicine. One of his best friends said, what a bubbling fountain of humor Mr. Spurgeon had. I laughed more and believe, verily, I verily believe when in his company than during all the rest of my life besides. He had the most fascinating gift of laughter. He also had the greatest ability for making all who heard him laugh with him. Do you know what the number one critique for his sermons was? Do you know the number one critique for his preaching? He got criticized and just obliterated in the press and by folks that would attend the church too and would walk out in the midst of his sermons. You know what he got criticized for? His humor. His incredibly gifted jokes from the pulpit. Keeping him alive and keeping others alive while others criticized. Great medicine, the scripture says. Great medicine is laughter and humor. <laughs> Other natural medicines for Spurgeon included this. He, he had to rethink work. This is how he rethought work. You know what he ended up doing? He ended up limiting his work to what he could do healthily. So this means he started realizing, I work in very unhealthful ways. And the work that I'm doing, that I'm working, and now it's moving into the unhealthy range, maybe staying up too late, maybe getting up too early, maybe not getting enough sleep. He said, I took that out. I had to rethink work. I could not. I refused to work when it became unhealthy for me. Some of you need to do that. Some of you need to give your spouse or your children your schedule and let them write it. Not yet, honey. I'm, I'm working on that. We'll work on that. I can't do that yet. All right? All right. And then, you know what else he did? He broke up his day into smaller portions. This was so helpful for me. I mean, I, I've been in ministry now, what? I don't know, a long time. And I, it's like, I'm when, on my days of doing sermon prep, I will sit and sit. I'll be at common grounds and everyone's watches are beeping. Time to stand up. Time to stand up. Time to stand. Right? Everybody have those new watches that do that? And I haven't stood up. You know what he ended up realizing? He realized that he needed to break down his, his days into sprints. Sprint here. Break. Sprint here. Break. Sprint here. Break. And then finally, he began to identify and reject all the enslaving laws that he didn't realize were there, but he was living by, like the law of capability. <laughs> oh, I can do this. Oh, I can do this. Oh, I can do that. Of course I can do this. No, you can't. No, you can't. You might be gifted at one thing. You might be gifted at two things. And that's great. You've been getting that gift. But you're not gifted in that. And you're not gifted in that. And that area that you think you're gifted in, you're not really all that capable in and of yourself. The law of being capable of being everything. The law of capability for women today with careers and children and being a, a wife. I mean, good night. Really? There is, that, 
the Proverbs 30 woman, or is it 31? It should be 35 because she doesn't exist. It's called law. There's the law of efficiency. Isn't that the American thing? Good night. He started realizing that every, just because it's efficient, <laughs> whatever's efficient, he started realizing that he was living by efficiency, and it was killing him. I'm not a machine. I'm not a machine. And the last thing was the law. No, there's two others. The law of endless to-do lists and the law of other people's expectations were killing him. Spurgeon learned to embrace his limits. I'm only human. Here's the point of the natural help. Here's what we need to see. You, me, we are embodied souls. You are not just a body. Despite what naturalism says, despite what evolutionary theory says, despite what modern scientific philosophies say, you are not a body only. And despite what your Christian friends say, and despite what the church seems to communicate a lot today, despite what evangelicals say, despite what Eastern philosophies and religions say, like Hinduism and Buddhism, they all say the same thing. Church folks and these folks, you are not just a soul. Who are you? You are an embodied soul. This means you are your body. This means you are your soul. You are an embodied soul. So, if you lose an arm, sadly, unfortunately, you lose an arm. You just lost a part of you. You didn't just lose an appendage. You didn't just lose worm food. You didn't just lose a lesser or lower state of existence that you need to be freed from. You didn't just lose a part of the evil material world that you need to be set free from. You lost a part of you. So of course, y'all, of course your biology, your brain... And your body affects you just like your spirit, just like your thinking, just like your feelings, just like your trusting, just like your desires, just like your worship affects you. So what does this mean for depression? This is what it means. It means the natural and the spiritual are teammates in depression. The natural... Behold, and the spiritual, behold, are teammates in depression. This means pastors and physicians are teammates in depression. I did this in the first service. I'm going to do it in the second just because I think liturgy matters, embodying it matters. If you are a physician, if you are a psychiatrist, if you are a therapist, please stand. I know, Michelle, you're here, so stand, please. Here we are. We are teammates in depression. I want to make that absolutely clear. All right, so let's get a little controversial before we leave this topic, shall we? What about medicines? 
What about the drugs of depression? What about, I don't know how to pronounce them all, but I will try, Elevil, Ludamil, Doxepin, Norpramine, Prozac, Lithium, Xanax, Welbutrin, Parnate, Nardil, Zolov, Lexapro, Ritalin. What about, what about medicines? Well, here's what, you want to know what Spurgeon said about medicines? Because they had medicines in their day, not the ones we have here. They had even more opiate-based medicines. You know what he says? Here's what he says. It would not be wise to live by a supposed faith and cast off the physician and his medicines any more than to discharge the butcher and the tailor and expect to be fed and clothed by faith. In other words, you're not going to walk by faith, you don't get rid of your butcher and expect to eat. You don't get rid of men's warehouse and expect to be, well, I don't go there. Where do I go? <laughs> Where do I go? Sports Academy or whatever that place is. T-shirts and jeans, that's all I need and I'm happy. You don't expect to not have them and walk by faith and all of a sudden you're clothed. You see what he's saying? But this is what it, interesting. He says, we make use of medicines, but these can do nothing apart from the Lord who heals all our diseases. In other words, your food and your medicines are tremendous gifts from the Lord, but notice that they're gifts from the Lord. They heal because of the Lord. They help because of the Lord. They don't have this, this power in and of themselves. They're gifts. Zach Eswine, in his new book, Spurgeon's Sorrows, writes, Today, medications have advanced dramatically. Yes, they have. But while these drugs offer substantial help, so please hear that. These drugs offer substantial help. Yes, they offer substantial help. But some longtime sufferers of depression can tire of feeling chained to drugs for years. True? Yes. They offer help, substantial help. At the same time, folks say this. And those of you that are on them, you probably could think that. Or they find help, but in such a way that aspects of their personality, which they value, get numbed or rendered ineffective. Okay. Others declare that the medication didn't seem to help at all. All right. So in sum... Medication for our bodily and mental illnesses is an aid and a gift. Please hear that. But they're a limited aid and a limited gift. He goes on to say, which I absolutely agree with him, medicines help us, but rarely in isolation from other helps. Okay? How do you survive depression? Pray your pain and receive natural help like it's the touch of an angel. Verse 9, lastly, there, where's there on Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai? There he came to a cave and lodged in it. The literal translation goes like this. There he came to, you ready? The cave. There's a definite article. There he came to the cave. What's the cave? The cave. The cave. Oh, this is the cave. The cave where Moses encountered God. The cave. That cave. The cave. And behold, pay attention, the word of the Lord came to him in the cave and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> I hope he doesn't say that to me when I'm in depression. First thing to notice here, though, is, y'all, this whole passage is moving from beginning to end to this place, to the cave. You're like, okay, Jeff, what, what's this passage about? What's it doing? Well, it's moving there. 
Okay, so where's this passage going? Where's it taking Elijah? There. Okay, what about the readers? What, what's it doing to us? Where's the power? Where's the divine intrusion in this text? Where's God going to help us? There. In other words, y'all, we can say it this way. No matter the road to Elijah's depression, no matter all the contributors that are involved in your depression, let's talk about them really quick that we know so far, the circumstantial kind, painful people, painful defeat, some kind of painful life event contributes to depression. No matter all those painful circumstances. And then the other one, what about biological depression? What about broken chemistry and brain, broken bodies, and how they contribute to depression, regardless of whether it's circumstantial, biological, and then the last one is spiritual, which we're going to look at next week and in the following week, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. But let's say you have these three kind of general categories of contributors to depression, and let's say they create the toxic one where they all meld together in just this nasty depression involving circumstances and involving biology and involving spiritual realities. Regardless what this passage is saying, all your contributors are to your depression. Whatever the road to your sorrow, you need to get to Sinai. You need to get to the cave. You need spiritual help. Period. You certainly need the natural help. And that's very, very important. But everything is moving you to spiritual help. You know what this means? This means depression is an invitation. This means depression is an invitation from God to you and me for this. Come unto me, God is saying. Come learn from me. Come to me and let me take you places you've never been before with me. Depression is an invitation to go places with God you've never been before. Elijah has never been to these places before with God. His depression was an invitation to go there. How do you know this is true? How do we know this is true? Jeff, you're making that up. Okay, maybe I am. How do you know depression is an invitation to go places with God you've never been before? Do you notice how certain the certainties of despair are in this passage? Do you notice that? I mean, Elijah is absolutely certain. It is enough. He's telling you. It is enough. Have you noticed, those of you that struggle with depression, how certain the certainties of despair are? It is enough. Elijah says, he's certain. He's certain that God is absent from him personally. 
He's certain that God's not working in his life at all personally. He is certain that he can't go on anymore. This is the certainty of despair. He's also certain, though, that there's no more ministry left in Israel. There's no more ministry for him to do. He's certain that the prophetic office is done. He's the only one and there are no more others. He's certain that God's word has come to an end. He's certain that he's just like his other fathers. Nothing's been accomplished. God's not at work in Israel. It's enough. Certainties of despair. Do you see this? The certainties of despair, please hear me, are real, but they're not true. They're real. You feel them, but they are not true because God is at work in Elijah's life. That's what this whole encounter is all about. Not only that, look at verses 15 through 18. It's an itemized list of all the things God is doing that Elijah knows nothing about. Oh, what? You've got 7,000 Billy Grahams running around Israel right now? Who would have thought? That's right. Who would have thought? Just because it feels a certain way, just because it looks a certain way, doesn't mean it is. And in God's economy... He is telling you and me, it never is. The certainties of despair are never right. I am at work in your life. I am at work in the world. I am at work in your loved ones. I am work. So depression is an invitation to go places with God you've never been before. Let's end with this. What's, what's the particular new place, though, that, that's being highlighted in this passage? So if we're going new places with God that we've never been before, there's new places that we need to experience about ourselves. We need to understand things about ourselves, understand things about God, understand things about the way the world is. There's stuff we have missing that we need to go places, and, and depression's an invitation. But what new place is highlighted here? <laughs> what specific place is God targeting in this text? Interesting. Do you see the whirlwind? God's not in the whirlwind, right? Do you see the earthquake? Well, God's not in the earthquake. See the fire? God's not in the fire. These are all familiar ways that God was present and active in Israel's history. Every single one of them. I mean, in fact, Adam and Jonah, God appeared in the whirlwind. God showed up in the whirlwind. And Abraham, God appeared in the fire. In Moses and Israel's history, he appeared in all three, whirlwind, earthquake, and fire. And just one chapter earlier for Elijah, God appeared in the fire. So what is going on in verse 12? And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there was a voice that came to him. The literal translation of low whisper is a thin whisper. A thin whisper. It's like it's there, but it's not there at the same time. In other words, there's a presence in the absence. What did Elijah need more than anything in his depression? What do you and I need more than anything when we're in depression? 
God's presence in the absence. When everything is screaming, absent, 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 I'm present. On the cross, Jesus stepped into absolute absence. When he, when he stepped into the absolute absence on the cross, he stepped into the absolute absence of God. The absolute absence of light, life, love. Why? So you never would. So you never will. So the presence will always be present in any absence. Depression is an invitation. It's an invitation to go places with God you've never been before. Pray your pain. Receive all the natural help you can get. And then go to the cave. And watch God take you places you've never been before with him. Amen.